First Coast Connect with Melissa Ross is sponsored in part by Baptist Health. This is WJCT News 89.9 in Jacksonville. Opinions expressed on the Friday Media Roundtable are those of our panelists and do not necessarily reflect the views of WJCT News. Well, hello there. A look back at this week's mayoral debate is what's coming up on First Coast Connect. More drama in the city council races as well. Governor Ron DeSantis says book bans are a hoax, even as school districts struggle to comply with the new law that requires all books be approved by a certified media specialist. And Florida Republicans favor Governor DeSantis over Donald Trump, according to the latest new UNF poll. That's just some of the stories making headlines this week. Good morning and live with you from Studio 2. I'm Dan Scanlon sitting in for Melissa Ross, and this is First Coast Connect. So thanks for listening. And just ahead, all the week's top stories on our Media Friday Roundtable. Don't forget to give us a yell, 549-2937. That's 549-2937. Then later we'll have a preview of Five and Dime's latest production. But first, this hour, Friday, we're here to round up all the week's news as we welcome Claire Heddles of WJCT News in Jacksonville today. Hi, Dan. Will Brown, also of WJCT News in Jacksonville today. Good morning. And I get to work with these guys every week. David Bauerlein of the Florida Times Union. Welcome, David. Good morning, Dan. Worked with him for many years. And Claire Goforth of The Daily Dot. Good morning. And I've worked with her, her here at this desk for many years. So 549-2937, let's uh, get some phone calls coming as we get into our top story. All seven candidates for Jacksonville mayor showed up for a debate at Jacksonville University on Wednesday. The biggest difference between the candidates was their views on where and how the city should invest money to address infrastructure issues. But riverfront renovations and downtown development were also major points of discussion. If you watched that debate, if you had comments on that debate, give us a yell, 549-2937. But let's talk about the debate. What was the big elephant in the room for those of you who were there? Um, Let's go with Will first, because I know you were there front and center. For me, the biggest thing was how well Al Ferraro focused his people-centered message. He continued to say, I'm not just the mayor for parts of town, especially when he was talking about developing the river, when he was talking about, uh, you know, the Jaguars. He kept coming back to, I'm the mayor for all of Jacksonville. Now, I will leave it to voters whether that is believable or not, but that is something he kept mentioning uh, uh, throughout the conversation. All right, Claire, what do you think? Uh, I sat at home watching it. I wasn't there, but I was in that building uh, for the sheriff's debate, and it's a big, echoey, packed uh, classical theater. So you tell me, what did you take from it? To Will's point, it is interesting that the on the Republican side, the fight has seemed to be between Cumber and Davis in the attack ads when polling shows Ferraro might actually be the, the closer Republican to, to Davis. And he has sort of managed to stay above some of the mudslinging because Cumber and Davis have focused their attack ads on each other. As far as the debate, I mean, it was great to actually hear them talking about issues. I mean, during every commercial break, you would see all the attack ads again. And I think that's what most viewers and voters have been seeing more of. But to actually talk about infrastructure and the job at hand, finally, it felt like. But his ad, there were four ads right before the debate. His ad was talking about we know the JEA is going to come up for sale again, and if it does and when it does, I will say no. So he was sort of injecting himself into the attack. Now, David, you've been covering races, this race, for a long time as well. What do you think uh, 
was the first thing off the top of your mind on on the debate? Well, I, w- I would agree with uh, Will and Claire that I thought Al Faro did himself well uh, for whatever number of undecided Republican voters are. He probably came across well in terms of resonating with them and their concerns. Uh, he was pretty good in terms of connecting with people, I thought, in the debate. Uh, I thought Cumber did well as well in terms of his her chance to be on the stage. But Davis was... Uh, is the front runner among Republicans. And I thought he just had an okay performance, but I don't think he did anything that really hurt his standing there. So I I would agree probably with people who say the general trajectory of the race wasn't changed, uh, which is that Donna Deegan is still the leading Democrat and ahead of everybody else in, uh, in the votes that are going to be tallied on March 21st. And then Davis will probably will come in second and then, We'll have two candidates, and let's hope they do debates because I'm not completely certain that we're going to have more debates, but I thought it was good to have seven, but it's even better to just have two uh, where you can actually have some real back and forth and more uh, substantive ability to flesh out positions. And that's a good point. I mean, Claire, 20 to 30 seconds is a soundbite. There's not a lot of content there. Some were able to win their way in some more verbiage that worked, but I mean— what David says, you can't get a lot out of an hour, especially when the anchor, when the host is saying, wow, we're almost over. You know, it's like it, it did go quick. So your your thoughts on those yeah, 20 course. to 30 seconds. I mean, that's not a lot of time. And with that many candidates, it doesn't give you an opportunity to talk about a lot of issues. I did note from David Borlein's coverage of it that they did talk about public safety and the Republicans, as you know, per usual, were saying, let's hire more cops, which we've been doing for many years in Jacksonville to limited effect. Um, while Donna Deegan said, maybe we should try a different approach. Um, I think that is something that may resonate with some some of the base. Um, I know that public safety is a key issue in Jacksonville, as well as infrastructure. You know, we've been ringing the bell of downtown development for so long that I think those of us in the media who have been around for a long time, you grow kind of cynical about it and weary of it. Yes, we want a vibrant downtown, but do we want a vibrant downtown at the expense of all the outlying neighborhoods, which I think some of the candidates did address in their in their comments. Well, you know, it's interesting here at WJCT, we're smack in the middle of that downtown development. And to see the Four Seasons going up down the street and to see some actual progress uh, when we have been covering this for years is actually nice. As a resident here for 30, 40 years, it's nice to see that's finally happening. It's just sad that we lost a, a nice overpass in the process. Now, speaking about development, uh, that really wasn't discussed much until toward the end when the potholes came up. So, Will, let's talk about the nuts and bolts. We all want to know about our streets. We all want to know about our sewer systems not failing. And there wasn't much until the second half. You're right. The first half, really the first 20 minutes was spent on the Jaguars and public financing for them. Um, but Really, you know, Leanna Cumber and Audrey Gibson both mentioned that Jacksonville, during their if their potential administrations, that they would work more toward trying to get state and federal dollars for infrastructure projects. Uh, specifically, I specifically asked Gibson afterward, "How are you going to work? If you are you going to work with the state of Tal- with the state in Tallahassee? You're a Democrat. The state is heavily Republican, Republican governor, Republican House, Republican uh, Senate, and she." smiled and said, you know, when I got there, I was a super minority. And when I left, I was in the super minority. So I have the experience of working across the aisle. Um, 
as you know, as for others, others, you know, Deegan and Frank Kiesler both mentioned their multi-generation Jacksonville families. And because of that, there were promises made during consolidation, whether verbally or wink, wink, nod, nod, that have not been kept. And uh, both of them deserve a lot of credit for saying that publicly and saying that on stage about how if they become the next mayor, they would work toward at least addressing some of those unfulfilled promises. Well, maybe they can fix the pothole in front of my house and the pothole down the street that they keep on putting a, water, a little bit of tar in that keeps on breaking up. Uh, Claire, what do you think? I mean, the public safety, yes, they were talking about the, the crime problem, the murder problem, the numbers, but that was the second half, and maybe should that have been the first half? Well, I think the candidates that are the front runners have emphasized development and infrastructure. That's Donna Deegan, who's really her platform has largely been about infrastructure. That's one of her primary campaign points. And Davis, you know, campaigning on business, his Jack's Chamber experience. I, I'll i throw to David Bowerline because I wasn't covering it that night. So I think maybe you could speak better to the public safety conversation. Yeah, one thing that uh, you know Claire mentioned that from the Republican side, uh, you know Davis talked about more police, and that's really out of the GOP playbook in terms of these campaigns. Uh, but it Donna Deegan also said she supports having more police. So uh, I don't know. To, she didn't put a number on it. Neither did Davis. Now Ferraro said two hundred and fifty. So you know you do have a case where it does look like uh, the candidates will be more a debate about how many, not if when we get to the runoff election. But I think something that I think something that's fascinating about this whole uh, discussion about more police um, is one of the Davis's ads is saying how Cumber and Ferrara are these big government spenders and saying, oh, well, the budget and they specifically cited the budget that was passed in September as being one of the biggest in city history. And it was a, a $129 million increase from the year before. Well, about a more than 25% of that increase went to JSO funding. So, I mean, like it's, it's, it was fascinating to me to hear people say, well, I'm going to support police. Great. But then using the whole, oh, well, my opponent spent more money than I would have as mayor. Well, which is it? Is it you're going to support, you know, exp- public uh, JSO and expanding their, their, expanding their funding? Or are you not going to do that? You know, I, to me, my, you can't, it's a little bit interesting to say my opponents spend a lot of money and then cite the fact that they also funded an increase for JSO, but criticize them for spending money. But you're saying you're going to do some of the same things. And yet Claire Heddles and I both covering the, the, the sheriff's race, as we just did, heard that half billion dollar uh, budget tossed out and the response from many that it hadn't done any good. So throwing more money wasn't going to work. Now, the other Claire, let's just talk about the other elephant in the room they started with basically the UNF poll's big question, which was, do you like the Jaguars? And if you like the Jaguars, do you like it $700 million, million uh, plus to, to help fund the stadium? And there were pretty much the same answers. We love the Jags. I don't know if we want to throw all that money as taxes on, on Joe Public. So let's talk about that. That's the first question that they answered. Yeah, I mean, Jacksonville Stadium is one of the worst in the nation, according to polling, in terms of the, you know, just we've all been there, I, I assume. It's the, 
just obviously it's not as nice as other stadiums. If we want the Jaguars to stay in Jacksonville, eventually they're going to have to pony up the money for a significant stadium upgrade or an entirely new one. But it's really not surprising to me that taxpayers see a $700 million price tag when their potholes are being filled with whatever that crumbly tar is that lasts about two weeks or one <laughs> yes. rainstorm um, and thinks that, you know, let's just hand this billionaire $700 million for a stadium. But if we're going to keep the Jaguars, that's the reality. So I think that, you know, another winning season could go a long way to helping improve public opinion um, of the, you know, stadium stadium investment. And, you know, it's up to our leaders to really make the case that this is going to make sense for us long term. I'm sure they can commission studies that show the economic benefits of having the Jags and work on public opinion. But at the end of the day, we elect these people to make these hard decisions and it's going to be up to them to to do so um, whether or not they decide to or not I mean that'll be very fascinating to follow in the next couple of years because I feel like Shad Khan wants to see that stadium start making some movement towards it sooner rather than later well you know it's interesting I'm not really a football fan but watching the playoff games and looking at everybody else's stadium and those aerial shots that showed what's around it you're right Claire Goforth we have a nice enough facility, but it doesn't look like the Mercedes-Benz place. It doesn't look the, the one that's got the waterfall and the river running next to it. It's amazing, but can we afford? And $750 million doesn't even sound like it's going to be a drop in the bucket to make what's across the street from the studio look like what I was seeing at the Super Bowl or those playoff games. Will? Yeah, but it, it, it goes worth mentioning that two things. One, the Jaguars themselves have kind of compared their stadium situation to Buffalo. Buffalo announced last year, I think $1.4 billion stadium plans with a good chunk of that being paid by the state of New York. The state of Florida is not going to pay anything uh, for whatever the Jags decide, whatever the Jags in the city of Jacksonville decide to do over there across the street at TIAA bank. That's one. So secondly, Jacks, like the chamber themselves of, and, and I mentioned the chamber because Davis is the CEO of the chamber. Two years ago, they went, went and visited Nashville. Nashville's another NFL city. They kind of, looked at Nashville as a as a peer of downtown. Well, recent last year, Nashville, home of the Tennessee Titans, also an, unveiled plans to try and build a stadium of their own in their city. And that was over a billion dollars. The Jaguars have said they want to renovate TIAA Bank Stadium, not build a new stadium. So renovating is going to be cheaper than that one billion plus price tag, but the price of business for our stadium renovation in the NFL is a hefty chunk of change. And if Jacksonville wants to be appear to those similar, those similar markets in terms of downtown and economic development, like Nashville or to a smaller NFL market like Buffalo, it's going to cost some money. Yeah. And you got to figure it's going to have to look darn good on that blimp as it goes overhead for the next Super Bowl. If we ever see it, the last Super Bowl here, 2005 guys. Let's move on to the next bit here. Uh, also this week, City Council District 7 candidate Jimmy Peluso is disavowing a negative text sent to voters targeting fellow Democrat John Phillips. The text sent out by the Accountability in Government Political Committee this week claims that Phillips is a, quote, longtime Republican with, quote, a history of supporting Republicans over Democrats. Peluso has called the text dirty politics and says he's not affiliated with the political com committee, but Phillips' campaign said the response was insincere and has since described Peluso as a GOP plant. Well, similar drama playing out in the at-large Group 2 race where challenger Joshua Hicks, a Democrat, is pushing back against a direct mailer that says voting for him would push Jacksonville, quote, in the wrong direction. The mailer is from Republican incumbent Ron Salem, 
And it comes after last month's poll from UNF that shows him leading by just one percentage point. Meanwhile, it appears District 1 candidate Alton McGriff has been exaggerating his education. The Democratic candidate has claimed he was a graduate of Florida State College of Jacksonville, where he achieved high honors and made an impact upon the hearts of all who met him. That's according to his campaign website as of last month, but FSCJ has no records of McGriff earning a college degree at that school. And according to reporting from the tributary, McGriff had been enrolled as an adult basic education program student. At some point, he switched to the GED prep program or the high school equivalency at Pathways Academy. That's a charter school run by FSCJ that closed in 2014. FSCJ confirmed McGriff didn't get his high school diploma at Pathways. The Florida Department of Education could not provide records without Griff's written consent. Duval schools also declined to provide info. So, guys, let's move into the other races. What what else is is cropping up as we are now a week and a half from the primary, as I'm calling it, March 21st? Anybody? I mean, do we have a Jacksonville George Santos? That's fascinating. Um, you know, it's nice to see actually competitive races in city council. Um, you know, a lot of times when we cover these things, it's sort of there's the anointed candidate and everyone's just waiting for them to win. Um, I do think that it's interesting to see Democrats playing dirty against one another. That's not very typical for Jacksonville politics. The Democratic Party here has been, you know, they've always been, they've put the soft gloves on when it comes to campaigning. So seeing Phillips and Peluso really go at each other like that, maybe, you know, people may dislike it, but it's an effective means of getting voter attention and effective way of maybe driving voter turnout. And we'll be hoping to see more turnout in this upcoming election than we have in years past. You know, you can chime in on this discussion at 549-2937. Certainly give us a yell and and uh, maybe your thoughts about what race you might be listening to or what ads are starting to crop up. It was brought out actually this week by many folks. We're within two weeks. So those who have whatever money is left, they're going to start running their ads. And we're starting to see those. Will, we talked about it yesterday. Right. Yes. We, we discussed how, you know, this is the time where people are going to let it all out and if you if you have something on your opponent you're going to share it <laughs> with the public at large depending on how much money you've got i mean if you've got x amount in the kitty you've got one or two shots i guess uh claire heddles the district seven race the peluso phillips race it does kind of feel like peluso's campaign didn't expect to have a strong a strong democratic candidate like phillips come into the race i mean the, he was kind of campaigning seemingly like he thought he was going to win and now it seems in the last few moments, it's this it's actually getting pretty tight between Peluso and Phillips. And I think Claire makes a good point that's we haven't seen a lot of kind of dirty politics between Democrats. And that's sort of cropping up, pointing fingers and seeing Peluso say try to unaffiliate him from himself from the ads. The the Hicks and Ron Salem ad question, you know, that ad that the campaign Salem's campaign put out about Hicks that has these loose citations to one organization that endorsed Hicks and sort of extrapolates this claim that Hicks wants to defund the police and photos of burning police cars. You know, it's messages that resonate with some voters, but are very loosely cited to anything that Hicks has has said. Okay. I was just going to say, I think the single worst development of this campaign cycle is that we get political ads on our text messages. <laughs> that is awful. You've I don't received know, how those? do they get my phone number? How do they know this? But my advice is if you get a text message political ad, do the same thing you do with the ad that wants to buy your house. Disregard it. It's I would not put any veracity behind it. I mean, they're so they're so uh, hit and run with these uh, text message ads. Uh, the other thing is that 
to Claire's point on District 7, no, there are only Democrats in that race. So, you know, it's kind of like, uh, you know, usually Democrats would kind of uh, counterpunch against Republicans. But now you do really see more of a, an all-out battle there. People are kind of defining themselves as the true Democrat in a race that will elect a Democrat. It's just a question of who. And don't forget, early voting has started, so you don't have to wait till the 21st. That first wave is already out there right now, and uh, we've got uh, some callers coming in. So, uh, Mark, on the west side, your thoughts about uh, what we're babbling on about here? Well, I didn't get a chance to uh, see the debate, unfortunately, but I just wanted to know if uh, any of the people that did got the impression that uh, any of these uh, candidates for mayor— uh, were going against Shad Khan and the you know, us spending a billion dollars on a on a brand new stadium, and it would be by the time all is said and done, it will be a brand new stadium. You know, the, the, he keeps saying renovation, but it'll they'll tear the old one down and and put up a new one. But I just don't get a warm fuzzy feeling that any of these candidates have the stomach to say no, that's too much, and go pack sand and you know go to London or whatever. I just see them all as pretty much bowing down and writing a check for whatever he tells tells the city of Jacksonville that he wants. So does, does anybody get the impression that there's anybody willing to fight him for, for that? Thank you, Mark. Well, that is an interesting question because, you know, the old bones of the Gator Bowl are still in there uh, from, from the 1960s. So, Will, you're shaking your head. I mean, his answer, his comment. He, he's spot on. All seven of them said that they would in some way or another, oh, look out for the taxpayer and, and try and make a deal. I think Audrey Gibson says she would herself be part of the negotiations. Oh, directly, yes. Right. <laughs> There's a better chance that the Jaguars trade Trevor Lawrence to the Titans tomorrow. <laughs> Can we make book on that? No. <laughs> <laughs> then then of, of, of the next mayor being the one who, quote, runs the Jaguars out of Jacksonville. And honestly, who would, I mean, what fool would go against Shad Khan when you're running for city election? Because he has the power of the purse. He could stroke a huge check to anybody who's against you and put his thumb on the scale pretty quickly. We can disagree whether or not that's appropriate and whether or not we want to see our races decided by who has the most money, who cozies up to the rich people. But that's the fact of the matter. Well, so far, the mayor's race hasn't shown that he or she who has the most money. I know. That's true. That's a good point. Yeah, but Shad Khan's the first guy, the first one to step up and actually see something get built here. It took a long time, but that's his construction trailers down the street. The other Claire. (laughs) To to Will's point a moment ago, I think we kind of nodded amongst ourselves, but, you know, the one who has the most money isn't isn't necessarily winning. I think Cumber either has the most or second most fundraising right now, somewhere in the range of three to five million and I think she's polling at 5%. So She's, the... she's in fifth. fifth. Again, according to the UNF poll from last week, um, I'd like to see another one done maybe uh, of that depth by next week. Um, David? Well, I don't think Shad Khan has given money yet in the mayor's race, so it'll be interesting to see when there gets to be a runoff if he then engages uh, all the candidates at that mayoral debate reflected the city at large, which is, Nobody wants to, oh, nobody, people don't want to see the Jaguars leave. They like having the Jaguars here, but they prefer not to pay any money for that to be an NFL city. And it's either one or the other at some point. And the lease they have for the current stadium, the stadium goes through the 2029 season. If there's no deal in place by then, then that's how NFL cities lose teams. So uh, what I heard from the candidates was, uh, yes, I will be a hard negotiator and I'll negotiate better than the other person will, 
but uh, that we want to keep the Jags here. We'll find a way to get a deal done. But if it comes to raising taxes to do it, property taxes was a question. I won't do it. Now, I didn't get into all the other types of taxes that might go up potentially for something like a, but a magnitude of spending. Someone did discuss that. Someone did talk about the use of taxes. Someone did talk about um, not letting that happen. And we have lit a fire out there. Uh, Martin is saying not a dime of public money should be used to fund stadium improvements. If Shad wants the stadium, let's give it to him. Then he can do whatever he wants. Tom says Donna Deegan is the only candidate that offers a hope for change in the city. The other candidates merely offer more of the same. And now we've got two folks online. So Linda from Mandarin, uh, what's on your mind? I, I, I would must admit, I was, I went on vacation. I came back and when, uh, I guess somebody just said, anybody would be a fool to go against Shad Khan. I understand that from a technical business friendly standpoint, but I'm looking for a public servant to protect my interests as a taxpayer. So it looks like all of the candidates and all of the reporting staff sound like they're all in. Now, I don't say we want to run him out, but when have we ever negotiated anything? We have people from a defunct law school that's been negotiating with a billion-dollar law firm. That's not an equal negotiation. So have we ever tried to get reciprocity, to get clawback? We gave him money for a hotel. That's a private investment. Shouldn't we have said, said $300 million for your own private hotel? We'll put that towards stadium renovations that, you know, give all of us an access because everybody's not going to be able to stay, you know, at the hotel. So, I mean, I just would lay, I mean, I know you guys are opinion reporters this morning, but a little pushback would be great on behalf of the taxpayers who will be paying taxes for this, or we will be paying debt service because we're going to have to borrow the money that we don't have. Thank you. Thank you, Linda. And Will, you had a hand raised. One thing that a number of the candidates up there mentioned as a potential negotiating tactic was games in London. Every year the Jaguars have played a game in London for eight or nine years. They're the only team in the NFL who has played a game in London consistently. That is one of the negotiating tactics that Deegan and Gibson and Davis and up and down the line said would be something they would try and claw back of the Jags might play in London every now and again, but not guaranteeing a home game. I do believe Donna called that a home game, literally. Um, uh, let's go to Tom on the west side and Tom talking about the stadium. Tom, you're on the air. Ah, uh, Yes, good morning. I just wanted to uh, point out that uh, one of the things that argues against uh, putting money into the stadium is the extremely low tax rate in Jacksonville. Uh, if we uh, have to pay that kind of money with our tax base, it is really going to hamstring the city and force us into borrowing money. And uh, that, uh, especially in light of the fact that we put so much of the city budget into police and fire is, is really going to limit what the city can do. I think we have to bear that in mind. All right. Thank you. You know, uh, old timers like me may remember when Jake Gay was crowing from the top of their building that they were the cheapest utility, that they were the, uh, the we paid the least money of any utility in the state of Florida. And now obviously uh, there's a rate increase. And Donna, I believe, among other candidates, talked about earlier this week that uh, we've already hit the taxpayer with taxes, gas tax, sales tax, things like that. And so that was the issue about putting more tax money into the stadium. Certainly I've been hearing from people who say that Mr. Khan is a multi-billionaire and uh, let's see some of 
his cash on the table. So uh, any thoughts as I'm uh, waiting for another call to come through here? I mean, that's well and good, but we all know it, that's not how it works in any NFL city. There certainly is something to be said for negotiating and trying to encourage him to spend more of his own money. Um, I don't know how they're going to have the leverage to get the London game back to back in town, but I mean, good luck with that. Um, the fact is, people do love having the Jacksonville Jaguars here. They love being in an NFL city. Some people don't care, but you know, if you're going to be the mayor who says, "I lost the NFL team on my watch," I mean, good luck with that. I don't think anybody wants to be in that position. True that, because um, even though I don't watch it all the time, I could certainly think to that bad future where, wow, we don't have a team anymore. What do I do on Sundays? You know, um, any other thoughts on the Jags? Uh, we lost the call we had coming in. Give us a call, um, a wonderful call here at 549-2937 and join in. Claire, go forth. Heddles, actually. Claire Heddles, I'm sorry. <laughs> two Claire's, for the moment two Claire's in the room, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, that's okay. But I do appreciate the caller's point. I think there's serious debate to be had about whether taxpayer money should be going to developments that not everyone can appreciate when we have so many infrastructure needs. I mean, I think that's that's an excellent point that that hopefully as after the run or after this election moving into the the runoff in May, we'll hear more about some more serious commitments as to how much money they're willing to spend. And truly a hotel is to bring people in. I can't think of the last time I've wandered into a Jacksonville hotel other than for a news conference that happened to be held there. I don't usually utilize the bars, certainly don't eat in the restaurants. We have our local mom and pops we go to. So uh, that's intriguing. That said, that Four Seasons, next to the park, next to Mosh, next to the Orlick, next to a new Marine fire station, next to WJCT, next to a modified Metro Park, is certainly going to be a jewel of a strip, mile, mile and a half, of city waterfront where we'll finally, like Tampa, like other cities, get to use our waterfront. David? And they'll have a river walk extension through there as well, which will be nice. I mean, uh, we do have a good river walk now. More is always better than less. And so I think that'll be really nice to be able to walk from the downtown all the way to the sports complex. And if you want to go to the Four Seasons and eat a meal with the Four Seasons or use their their health club, I guess that's an option too for the for the river walk extension. We don't know on the stadium what the ass is going to be, you know, Several hundred million dollars, likely, you know, seven hundred fifty million or seven hundred million dollars. That seems too high. I mean, uh, this is, uh, you know, this is a small market team. The caller talked about our tax base. There has to be some realism about what's realistic for this city to afford, compared to say a much larger metropolitan area that can afford to spend more on a stadium, just like can afford to spend more on civic buildings in general. But uh, I do think it'll be in the hundreds of millions of dollars and uh, how that would be paid for and what conditions there would be on the lease. That's the other part of it. If you extend the lease, okay, what are you going to, what's the lease going to entail? What if the Jaguars were to leave after 10 years? Do you get all your money back for the stadium? Uh, I do think the having them play every year in London, if taxpayers are asked to pay more for a stadium, but one of the home games requires buying a ticket to fly to London to watch, that's a little bit hard to swallow in the optics. So I think the lease is going to be as least as interesting in terms of how that's negotiated as the actual deal for the stadium. One quick thing, I've always wondered about this when we talk about spending money on the Jags. Obviously, Nassau County and St. John's County, and to a lesser extent, Clay County, they see a benefit from when we have home games. People come 
They stay in Nassau County. They stay in St. John's County. What is stopping us from having more of a regional buy-in on this and maybe putting some of that burden on our neighbors who are also benefiting from us having this team? True that. I mean, TPC right now, you know there's motel rooms up and down Butler Boulevard into Jacksonville and into St. Augustine that are being occupied to go watch that. I mean, but like last year, St. John's County taxpayers uh, overwhelmingly did not support a tax increase that would have uh, helped road infrastructure. So I have a hard time believing they'd say, yeah, let's spend some of our tax dollars to support the Jags. Well, leave us move on to the next item of discussion here. In other news, Governor DeSantis this week pushed back on what he's calling a hoax from news outlets claiming the state is banning books from school libraries and classrooms. In his press conference, he singled out Duval County where books about Roberto Clemente and Hank Aaron were temporarily removed. There have been 23 districts that have had violations, uh, mostly involving pornographic material. But we, uh, the Department of Education, went to, I think it was Duval County, said, hey, wait a minute. You have a beef with Hank Aaron or Roberto Clemente. Where are you getting this? Why can't we learn about, about that? Where in our law does it say? And of course, they didn't have an answer. I said, no, no, no. We're not taking Hank Aaron out. We're not taking Roberto Clemente out. And, you know, look. If the, our kids only learned about Roberto Clemente and Hank Aaron, I think they'd probably do okay if you just studied their, their lives. So, so that, that's a hoax. That, that's a false narrative that they're trying to do. And when you were in, I know, Duval County, what they did was they kind of waited to even indulge and in, in follow the law for a long time. And so you ended up with a situation where kind of, at the end of the period when this, they said, oh, we got to take all these books and, and review and all this stuff. And uh, that wasn't necessary the way they did it. They chose to do it, I think, to try to get more maximum impact in terms of what we've been able to accomplish. Uh, don't forget to give us a call on this topic and anything else you want to at 549-2937. You know, last year, DeSantis signed laws that require schools to rely on certified media specialists to approve which books can be used in classes. Guidance on how that would be implemented was provided to schools in December. In January, 52 certified media specialists for Duval County started reviewing one and a half, about one and a half million books. Now, the governor at a news conference I covered two weeks ago at a Westside trucking firm also called the, the issue of the empty bookshelves, a hoax. And yet I received a teacher email when this thing started anonymously, and I'm sure many others here have as well. So let's talk about, is this a hoax or is this something else? Uh, Claire Heddles. Governor DeSantis has been trying to throw Duval under the bus as over applying the law, taking this extreme approach to make the, the law look bad. And I think that's largely because a lot of the national coverage has focused on Duval because Duval is reviewing every single book across the district. And it is true that it is a more intensive approach than most of the surrounding counties. Duval, for on their behalf, they're saying that this is what needs to be done to protect their teachers. Dr. Green told the school board a few weeks ago that they had an incident last year where something was challenged by a parent. The district thought it was fine, supported the parent. Then the parent went to the state and the administrator or principal who was the center of this conflict ended up having a, a reprimand from the Department of Education. So Dr. Green said, you know, that's an example where we feel like we need to protect our staff by reviewing every single book so that they don't end up in the crosshairs of the state. And so DeSantis is saying they're over applying the law and it's a hoax. But at the end of the day, it is true that Duval County is reviewing 
all of its books. Currently, there are only 10,000 that are on the approved list. So students do have limited access to books. That's that's a fact. The Hank Aaron and Roberto Clemente situation, that's from a separate set of books that the county started reviewing last year before these new laws came into place. And those were not placed on shelves at the time during a extended review process. They were later put on shelves, but they've sort of been equated to the current review because some of the standards that that the administrators and reviewers were following are similar. So there's there's questions about which books are going to end up not going back on shelves in this review of 1.6 million. You know, it's interesting. Someone much smarter than me just reminded me that kids can access a lot worse on the device I'm holding in my hand if you're streaming video known as your cell phone, unless you as a parent have put some kind of limits on what they can watch. And that is exactly why my elementary age child does not have a cell phone. <laughs> but high schoolers and middle schoolers do. Um, you so, won't have one by then either. <laughs> then, good, good for you. But I've seen your, your child, and I can agree that he is well brought up. So congrats on that. But what about the rest of you? I mean, is this a hoax? We know we've seen the photos. We've heard of a substitute teacher being fired because he showed video. And if you look at the whole video, there are books in shelves, but they look like they've been somewhat cherry-picked. I mean, it's pretty interesting to see the governor sign laws, the Stop Woke Act, and the Don't Say Gay Bill, also known as the Parental Rights in Education, that severely restrict what teachers can say in the classroom and what types of materials that children are allowed to access in the classroom, or else they face a criminal liability. And then, at the, and then just a few weeks later, um, after touting these type of bills as protecting the kids to be saying that this is a hoax. Well, it's not a hoax. Duval County is merely trying to protect their teachers from going to jail because they're teaching about Roberto Clemente because it might make white kids feel bad. I mean, that's just really, that's really what's going on here. And I mean, they're, they're proposing additional restrictions in the legislature. And I don't have, I don't have very much faith that DeSantis is going to veto those if they pass. So I do, um, I think that, DeSantis took a little bit of blowback because people saw those empty shelves and they said, wait a second, why are these kids not having access to books? But, you know, that's because he's kowtowing to groups like Moms for Liberty, who really supported a certain school member, school now school board member and is a very powerful voice in Florida. Now there's going to be there's starting to be some pushback against that. There's another group that started to say, you know, that's been formed to push against Moms for Liberty and this type of draconian education um, policy. But Flor- it's working for him. It's getting him on the national stage like he wants. And so I think he's just going to keep doing it as long as it's effective. It seems a little damned if you do, damned if you don't, right? I mean, if the school board or the school district says, we're going to have an education specialist review every book to make sure we're in complete compliance with what the state wants us to do, then by necessity, you're going to have to take books off the shelves until you review them. That's what's happened in Duval County. If you don't take that approach, there's a risk that a book is somewhere on a shelf in Duval County. A parent's going to learn about it, bring a complaint, and then that that school district, that school teacher or principal shows up in a news conference of a state official proclaiming that it's outrageous that this book is in this school. So, you know, I mean, I my understanding of the law is that they have to review every book, and they're reviewing every book, and there's no way to, to just go take the book off the shelf, put it back one at a time. You bring the books out, and, and to, 
I said it before. The books are guilty until proven innocent, and that's the that's the intent. And, of and maybe the, we have the to, law is structured. Maybe we have to wait until the start start of the next school year so that there is sufficient time to review what's there. We've got three calls holding, so let us go to Ed in Orange Park. Ed, you're on the air. Yeah, uh, well, I thought the governor did a fantastic job to clearly show the reasons uh, in what uh, material was found all over different schools in the state of Florida that was completely inappropriate for, for minors, uh, elementary school, junior, and even high school, uh, to the point that Facebook and Twitter won't allow, if you try to put in those pictures that from those books, they won't allow you to do it. However, if you guys think it's appropriate uh, for a minor, I'm sure you agree it's appropriate for adults like us who watch your, your show, put it, in your, put it right now in your, in your uh, Facebook uh, uh, live stream and see if we agree with that or not. But uh, I don't think it's appropriate. All right. Thank you, Ed. You know, that's, they say not safe for work, and, and that should be holding for everybody uh, in their public life, I guess. Be careful what you do or what's seen over your shoulder. Let's talk to Scott from Clay County. Scott, you're on the air. What are your thoughts? Thank you very much. I am a school board employee. I go to over 42 different schools at any time throughout the week. I've been to these schools growing up. I've been inside their libraries. It's not just risque books that they're taking off the shelves. They are restricting access to all books. I've been inside rooms with dozens of boxes of books, bookshelves being taped off. The schools don't know what to take out, so they're taking out everything. I glanced inside a couple of these boxes just to see why are these books sitting in here unused. It's books teaching about the the functions of our government, books teaching kids about the dangers and risk of homelessness. It's appalling. Thank and on, well, thank you. And on that note, we're going to have to wrap up discussion because it is time if I may, <clears throat> for the lightning round. This is the time when we basically ask our four notable, knowledgeable folks here their thoughts of maybe something we haven't talked about. So let's start here. Claire, go forth. What's your thought? So I caught a story yesterday about Gannett, the parent company of Florida Times Union. Gannett. 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 Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I, I read it. I didn't, Gannett I didn't hear it. Um more respected. They have lost 59% of their staff in the last several years and 77% of their paid subscribers, which is really distressing. You know, support your local media, support the Times Union, support WJCT, Jacksonville Today. Really, folks, we need it because we need to know what's going on in our community. Will. I'm, I'm still mind blown over uh, what Claire said. Uh, also support the St. Augustine record down in St. John's County. Yes. Um, you know, the, t the players are... Player Championship is going off this week. Second round is underway. Uh, Colin Morikawa was one off the lead. Uh, I think he saw 65 yesterday. Uh, so the players is going on. I'll be out there on Sunday trying to see for the first time in a decade as a fan and a spectator. So that's going to be uh, something I'm really interested to check out. Claire Heddles. I've been continuing to follow the level of public access to Jacksonville Sheriff's Office buildings. This week we had a new story come out about this so-called Sheriff's Circle people handpicked by sheriffs to have access to buildings, and most had used it far less than Kent Sturman, who had extended access, but we, we dug into that, and that's at jackstoday.org. And my former colleague, David Barline. Well, first of all, following what Claire said, it is shocking, the figures. And, Stunning. Uh, and what it's, the, the huge toll has taken. Uh, Tuesday, the city council is going to vote on uh, a UF 
University of Florida campus in Jacksonville. Looks like they'll support $20 million from the city for it. One thing that came out interesting is that the University of Florida has this super artificial intelligence computer in Gainesville that would somehow be hooked up into what, whatever they do at Jacksonville that it's called Hyper Gator AI. I personally think it should be called Hyper Gator Aid, Gator Aid, but uh, I don't think that. I think that's copyrighted. That's probably copyrighted. But anyway, the, it, it is going to pass. So it looks like uh, that'll be one more move towards possibly potentially having a University of Florida campus for graduate level research coming to Jacksonville at some point in the future. Well, trust me, all of this is news and all of these journals will be covering this news. So you'll hear from them and us. So I want to say thank you, David. Thank you, Claire. Thank you, Claire. Thank you, Will. Wonderful, wonderful time for me to fill in with some of the most talented folks. Uh, but let's not forget the Florida Roundup is today at noon. A Florida proposal would ban abortions after six weeks. We'll also hear from the new leaders of Florida's Republican and Democratic parties. That's the Florida Roundup right here on WJCT at noon. And on this week's What's Health Got to Do With It, we'll talk with Ehlers-Danos about Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, a rare genetic connective tissue condition. That's tune in tomorrow at 4 p.m. and Sunday at 9 p.m. And in a moment, a preview of the Five and Dime Theater's latest production. We'll be right back. Thanks, Dan. Thank you. Northeast Florida artists are making noise that's reverberating across the country, and the Jacksonville Music Experience is your ticket to the local scene. Music reviews, curated playlists, music history, concert recommendations, and profiles of local artists, all put together by our team of local contributors. The Jacksonville Music Experience plays it local and plays it loud. Visit jacksmusic.org to read and hear more. For the best music from the 60s, 70s, and 80s, tune in to 89.9 HD3, the WJCT app, or jacksmusic.org. We've got your music on Anthology on 89.9 HD3. This week on Science Friday, with spring coming early in many places. On our annual spring gardening show, we'll talk about plants resilient to climate change, how to choose flowers to feed the birds, and keeping your soil healthy, why that is so important. We're also taking your gardening question calls all on Science Friday from WNYC Studios. This afternoon at 3, here on WJCT News 89.9. 
Law enforcement and lawmakers lash out at efforts by Fox News to rewrite history. Tucker Carlson is a propagandist publicly pretending to be a newsman. Also on the Roundup, what the president's budget can tell us about the fight over the debt ceiling, and the Justice Department issues a damning review of the Louisville Police Department. We'll get to all of it next time on 1A. Today, starting at 10 on WJCT News 89.9. Hey, welcome back. The Five and Dimes latest production and its first of 2023 is Anna DeVere Smith's Let Me Down Easy. It opens next week. So sitting right here with me is Bradley Akers, Managing Artistic Director of The Five and Dime. We're here with the preview, Five and Dime. I'm old enough to remember that was the name of the non-Woolworths store down the street from me. So tell us, what is Miss Smith's Let Me Down Easy all about? That's right. Well, thanks for having us. Um, let Me Down Easy is a collection of portraits in the form of monologues that uh, talk about the human struggle and how the human spirit faces some of life's most difficult questions and moments through the lens of the national debate on healthcare. And so what she's done, and she did this several years ago, is she conducted interviews with well-known people like Lance Armstrong and Michael Bent, and then everyday people like you and I to talk about uh, important questions like what relationship uh, people have with their bodies, what does access to healthcare look like for some people versus other people, and it creates this really moving, challenging, sad, and funny experience that we can all relate to, especially today. Wow, you are right on the money. That's like headline stuff. How, how, where are you staging this and how are you staging this? Sure. So we are actually, this season, the Five and Dime is in residency at the Florida Ballet in Arlington. So we share space in there, uh, which, which is really wonderful for us. We get to kind of transform the theater space every time that we tell a story. Um, and for this one, we're really trying to create as intimate an experience for audiences and actors as possible. So there's five women that will bring all 20 monologues to life. They play four different characters each. And so, um, you know, th there's not scenes, there's not a lot of dialogue between characters. It's really focused on the monologues. So you see one woman go up and tell a story, and then you see another woman go up and tell a story. And I was watching it in rehearsal the other night, and it's just, it, it just catches you by surprise. It takes you off guard a little bit. And it really makes you feel like you're in a different world connecting with these people. So how are you staging it? I mean, is it uh, in the round? Are our audience surrounding them? Are they just sitting in an armchair, single spotlight, uh, video screen, or what? Yeah, so for this one, it's 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 more traditional as in, um, you know, stage and then audience with sort of that space in between. But the nice thing about the space is that you're no more than 10 feet from the actors. So it's not like being in some of our beautiful venues around town where it's much bigger. You're right there in the action. You're right there. You can see all of the facial expressions. You can see into these women's eyes. So it's it's really, really moving. And are these women depicting historic or, or topical characters, or are they just themselves? Uh, they, they will don the characters. So, for instance, like I mentioned, Lance Armstrong is one of the characters. So one of our actresses, Kate McManus, plays Lance Armstrong. And you know that she's not Lance Armstrong, right? She's not trying to embody Lance Armstrong. But there's something about his words the way that Anna DeVere Smith has captured 
the way that Lance Armstrong speaks and this actress and then all the other actresses bring that to life in such cool ways. So how did you pick these people? I mean, Armstrong obviously has certainly had his ups and downs over the past few years. And certainly uh, some think maybe he shouldn't have uh, <laughs> yeah. done what he did when he did it. Uh, how did you pick these people? So Anna Devere Smith picked picked all these people and she really wanted to create both everyday pe find everyday people with stories about healthcare and then people that audiences would recognize. And so it really does create every end of the 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 gamut on how we talk about healthcare. Um and and the way that they connect, you wouldn't think that these monologues connect with them being 20 different people, but there's a through line of each one and that is how does my body uh face the world? How am I resilient in my body? Sounds to me like you should set up a camera and and do a uh, a four by three box on each person and let them do a straight monologue, um, and and then pop that as a blog after this is done. To me, just to 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 keep that that one on one communication going. That's just me as a as a film guy sometimes yeah. too. Just, absolutely, absolutely. Um, now, how can people attend? I mean, I in the back of my mind know where the Florida Ballet is, but. Uh, where is it? What are the times? What's the price tag? Sure, that's right. It's on Atlantic Boulevard um, in the Regency neighborhood. Um, it's a big building, and it surprises people every time because they don't realize how far back it goes. Um, but they can attend. They can look at our website, thefiveanddime.org, uh, for tickets. We run from March seventeenth through the twenty fifth. That's two weekends. Um, and tickets uh, are can be purchased online. It's just $22 ahead of the, the performance. And then also what's really cool is that the Monday, Monday, March 20th, we offer a pay what you please performance that um, anyone can attend for no matter what. You can drop a dime. I, I say a dime because it's in our name. You can drop a dime in a bag or you can just come attend the show and, and, and see it for free. Okay. Um, what next? What next? Well, we've, we just announced our full 2023 season, which will be at the Florida Ballet. Uh, in, in June, we'll open with a dark comedy called Clyde's that's uh, going to be making its Jacksonville and Northeast Florida premiere. Um, after that, we'll move to a play about aging called For Peter Pan on Her 70th Birthday. And we'll finish the season with a musical, uh, Stephen Sondheim, uh, who, who passed away just a few years ago, one of the greats of musical theater. Uh, we're going to be doing his show, Assassins, which we were scheduled to do uh, in 2020. But I guess I don't have to mention why we didn't end up. Uh, no, I, I, when I would do this show, I would be at home uh, <laughs> talking to my phone. Yes, exactly. So. Um, just live local theater. Just with with 20 seconds to go live local theater why are you involved oh it's vital it, it is i always call it uh these people these volunteers second full-time jobs because we have community theater here with people who are volunteering their time to tell stories and i really do believe that theater is about the shared experience of humanity it's an art form in which we you and i can go sit in an audience and, and experience what it means to be human for an hour, two hours, and be whisked away. So it, it comes at a really small price tag to experience some incredible talent that we have here on the First Coast. Okay, that's Bradley Akers. He's Managing Artistic Director of The Five and Dime. They're at the Florida Ballet on Atlantic Boulevard. Their first production of the year is Let Me Down Easy, opening next week. Thank you, Bradley. Thank you. Remember, David Luckin is our executive producer. Our senior producer is Heather Schatz. Brendan Rivers is our producer. Our director is Isabella De Silva. With technical help from Morning Edition host Michelle Corum. 
If you've got questions or comments about First Coast Connect, send an email to firstcoastconnect at wjct.org. I'm Dan Scanlon, sitting in for Melissa Ross. You're listening to First Coast Connect on WJCT News 89.9 Jacksonville. Have a great TPC weekend. Support for First Coast Connect is provided by Baptist Health and the North Florida TPO.